So our scripture reading is a long one, so bear with me. It is Genesis 29, 1 through 33, so more than a whole chapter. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it, because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all of the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel's Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give you to her than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as, a, as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. 
So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children, or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhal, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and that through her I too can build a family. Thank you, Rachel. That was not planned. <laughs> so, my brother's firstborn child and my own firstborn child have a number of things in common. His firstborn child is a girl and has blonde hair and blue eyes. My firstborn child is a girl, has blonde hair, blue eyes. My brother's firstborn child, Mikal, was born on the 4th of July. My daughter, firstborn child, was also born on the 4th of July 11 years later. They have a number of things uh, in common. One of the more strange ones is that they both... Uh, inadvertently, accidentally were given inappropriate drinks to them by their respective uncles. So when Mikal, my brother's daughter, was about three, I remember taking her to Wendy's, and uh, she was two or three years old, somewhere in there, and I remember holding her in my arm, and I had a, like a, a biggie-sized Coca-Cola in the, in the left hand, and she, she said, can I have a sip? And I wasn't thinking, I just, I loved her, I would do anything for her, and I'm like, sure. So, not thinking about the fact that this girl had never had caffeine in her life, and she leans over, takes a sip, and then it hits me, I'm like, wait a minute, wait, I, this, is, this is not good, you can't do this. So I pulled away from her, I'm thinking to myself, one sip, what difference is that going to make? No need to tell anybody, this can be our little secret. Okay, well, the next day, my brother calls me first thing in the morning, and he says, Kevin, did you give Mikal caffeine? I'm like, uh, what? Why? He's like, she was up all night. She came into our room. She was bouncing up and down on the bed. And so, so my brother has, well, for the longest time, he would, he would never let me forget that. Until he one-upped me about 11 years later. 11 years later, this is just a couple of years ago, my family were back in Colorado, in Grand Junction, Colorado, where my brother lives. And my wife... Uh, well, my daughter, Grace, came up and said, Mommy, I'm thirsty. So, Mommy goes to the refrigerator, opens it up, and pulls out, uh, there was a, a little bottle that had apple juice in it. So, she uh, pours my daughter, Grace, a cup of apple juice, and Grace goes and takes a sip of it and spits it all over the kitchen. As it turned out, it wasn't apple juice it was fireball whiskey. <laughs> My brother had put it in there for a camping trip. I'm not sure how it ended up in there. So needless to say, he doesn't bring up the whole Coca-Cola thing anymore. But the story of my daughter sipping fireball whiskey amongst another of things, lessons that might be drawn out of it, when she spewed it all over the kitchen, here's, here's what emerges from that, from, from our say here is that fireball whiskey cannot quench your thirst. Today we are continuing in our series called Thirsty. 
is a series which we began at the beginning of this series of Lent. And the basic theme of this series is simple. That like water is to our bodies, God is to our souls. Like water is to our bodies, God is to our souls. We can't live without water. You can't live without water. You, we, we saw this in the first message. You can only go a few days, really, before your body will die. And in a similar sense, your soul cannot go without God. God is to your body what water is to your soul. And so we see this season of Lent as we're sort of calling it a season of rehydration. This is a time when, when, we, when we focus in on taking a drink of the Spirit of God. I, I mentioned March Madness is in full swing. Basketball players, what do they do? They run around on the court. They run around, run around, and then during timeouts, they come off the court, and what do they do? They sit down and they drink water. It's a time of rehydration. And this season for us is a time of rehydration. We should think of it that way, as a time to, to redouble our efforts in terms of spending time with God, cultivating time with God. I encourage you to spend time in prayer. Spend time studying the Scriptures. Guys, come out for the men's study Saturday morning. Uh, it was amazing. It was kind of, we kind of threw it together at the last minute. 18, 18 guys came out. I really feel like God is doing something with that. We encourage you to come. That's a great thing to do, to come and just take a drink of the Spirit, encourage one another in that. That's what this season is about. It's a season of rehydration. And one of the things then that what we need to look at and what the series is helping us to do is we need to realize that oftentimes what we do, instead of drinking from the source that can quench our thirst, we drink from things that are the equivalent of soda and fireball whiskey. We drink from things that will not quench our thirst. We drink them thinking they're going to quench our thirst, but they cannot quench our thirst in the same way that soda and whiskey is not going to quench your thirst. And so this is a time when we, we've got to think, okay, what, what are some things maybe that I've been looking to in my life to quench my spiritual thirst that I really need to give up or, or I need to at least not look to as my source, right? I mean, Again, there's nothing wrong with soda and fireball whiskey. It's just that if you're using that to quench your thirst, you're in trouble. And similarly, the things that we're going to look at, they aren't in and of themselves wrong or bad. We'll see this. But when they become the thing that we look to to satisfy our souls, that's when we find ourselves in trouble. And the reality, as we're going to see as we move through this series, is that just about anything can become what we might call a counterfeit well a well from which we draw to quench our thirst that can't quench our thirst. Just about anything can become that, and we'll see that as we move through it. But over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at three of the biggies, three of the big ones, three of the ones that we often turn to as our source to quench our thirst, which ultimately cannot. And here's what they are. Relationships, money, and success. Relationships, money, and success. These are the three of the biggies that often take the place of God in our lives. We look to them to quench our thirst. And today what we're looking at is relationships. And what we discover in this passage is three individuals who are doing exactly this. Three individuals who are looking to relationships to quench their spiritual thirst, to quench something that ultimately only God 
can quench. We look at these three individuals, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, and we're going to look at how they are looking to relationships to try to quench the spiritual thirst. And here's, and here's in just a minute, Nick, I'll tell you when to put it up here. I came up with a formula. Every once in a while, I'll do this for you math people. They kind of get tired of me and my artsy ways of talking, right? So uh, I'm going to give you a, a formula, a mathematical formula to help you to understand a principle here. And, 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 and here's, here's what it is. You can go ahead and bring it up. Spiritual thirst plus human relationships equals Jerry Springer. Spiritual thirst plus human relationships equals Jerry Springer. In other words, if you try to fill your, you can go ahead and you can go back to the, the picture. If you try to fill your spiritual thirst, try to quench that with human relationships, you're going to end up with Jerry Springer. Because that's, that's really what goes on in this passage here, right? I mean, I had to have Rachel read the whole story because if you're going to talk about a story, you have to tell the story. That's why we had to read the whole thing. But what's going on? I mean, this, can you imagine? Jerry Springer would love to get these three on his show, right? I think it's over now, right? But, but this is exactly what he would love. This is what happens. This is just dysfunction all over the place. And you need to understand that when you read this. I, I think some people get really confused when they read the Bible, right? Because they, they see these figures uh, in, through, throughout the Bible, individuals that we name our children after, right? And and we're like, we sort of expect them to be the ones, well, i got to be more like the people in the Bible. No. No, 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 no. That, that's not, no. I mean, there are, are aspects of them that we look to and we can see as examples. But that's not really the, the, the main point here. This is a really important principle, which an entire sermon could be preached on this, an entire series could be preached on this. And, and that is that, is that the Bible, when you look at the individuals in the Bible, it's not about God picking out great people for his purposes. It's about God picking out average people like you and me to do great things. Jacob, okay, Jacob, get this, Jacob is the guy who becomes Israel. The kingdom of Israel comes from him. The 12 tribes of Israel come out of this massive dysfunction, this Jerry Springer episode going on here is, is what brings out the 12 tribes of Israel. And what it shows is that, is that God didn't choose Jacob for these incredible purposes that he had because there was anything special about Jacob. He chose him out of his grace. Over and over again, we see God doesn't choose people because of anything that they've done. He chooses them entirely on the basis of grace. And then when he chooses them, they end up in the Bible and they kind of end up looking kind of silly so that God can look awesome. These are not individuals that we look to to sort of, oh, I, I need to be more like Jacob. Now, this is, this is a story of three individuals who find themselves in a Jerry Springer episode precisely because, precisely because they are not looking to God. They are not quenching their deepest spiritual thirst with God himself, they're looking to something else. And they're all looking to relationships. Now, they're looking to relationships in three different ways. We're going to look at three aspects of relationships, three ways in which you can look to relationships in order to satisfy your spiritual thirst. And these three different ways are represented in these three individuals. And here's what it is. Sex, companionship, and children. 
that all three of these things can become in any individual that which they look to to quench their deepest spiritual thirst. And when they do so, it just leads to Jerry Springer. Sex, companionship, and children. First of all, sex. Look, you can try to spin this however you want. Jacob is after sex. That's, what's go- that's, what, that, that's what you discover here. His pursuit of Rachel, it is about his libido. That is the, the dominant theme what emerges in this passage. I mean, just let's take a look here at what happens. Verse 17. Verse 17, here it says, this is from Jacob's perspective, right? So you've got Leah and you've got Rachel, these two women. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. That is an ancient Near Eastern way of saying Rachel was hot, Leah was not. In Jacob's mind, Rachel was hot and Leah was not. This is entirely about his physical attraction for her, as as if that doesn't show it. I mean, notice what happens in verse 21. Look what he says to his father-in-law. Listen to what he says to his father-in-law about the woman that he's in love with. Give me my wife. My time is complete, and I want to lie with her. I mean, look, that, that, that that is inappropriate in the post-60s sexual revolution, post-shades-of-gray you know, era that we live in. That's inappropriate now. Think about how inappropriate this was back then. This is just driving home. He is driven by his libido. That's what this is about. And as if the story doesn't need to remind us anymore, well, what happens when you read on in this chapter and going into chapter 30, he sleeps with four different women. This is what Jacob is looking to in order to satisfy his deepest thirst. And, and here's what emerges from this. He will do anything for it, right? That's what you'll do for, for, for whatever it is you're looking to to satisfy your deepest thirst. You'll do anything. And that's what this narrative tries to communicate. In, in the beginning, when, what, what happens? He's, he's gathering around this well, and he lifts this massive stone off the well. Apparently, the way it worked was in that, in that age, uh, communities had rights to wells. So you'd have a community that had the rights to a certain well. And they didn't want people who weren't a part of that community using the well. So they would put a huge stone on it, making it very difficult for somebody to get it. It was also a, a sort of accountability so that nobody's sneaking more water than they have rights to. Generally, the way it would work is you kind of needed the whole community to come out in order to even move the stone so that you could get the water, Right? Oh, but not Jacob. Now, he's so smitten. He so wants Rachel that he's able to just lift this stone all by himself. And what that foreshadows, right, is the, the, the effort, the degree to which he will go in order to get his spiritual thirst quenched in the way that he's pursuing it, right? So he lifts this stone, and this foreshadows the fact that he gives 14 years of his life in order to have Rachel. So for him, he's trying to quench his deepest thirst with sex. For Leah, let's talk about Leah. Leah is trying to quench her deepest thirst with companionship. For her, it's all about companionship. You know, the sort of traditional statement, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. Uh, Not for Leah. For Leah, it's first comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage, 
and then maybe, just maybe, my husband will love me. First comes marriage, then comes the baby and the baby carriage, and then maybe, just maybe, my husband will love me. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. It goes on in verse 34, again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. This is a woman who she wants nothing more than for her husband to love her. It's that companionship that she desires. And in, in, fact, in fact, what you kind of notice here is that she actually treats God the way Jacob is treating her. She treats God the way Jacob is treating her. You see, Leah was sort of like a consolation prize to Jacob, right? Jacob wants Rachel. He wants Rachel, 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 Rachel. Uh, and, and Leah, okay, all right, okay, fine. Leah's, I'll, I'll take Leah too. Notice what's going on here. God blesses her, right? Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, and he said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely now my husband will love me, right? Yeah, please, God, I need you to get my husband to love me. Help me to get my God to love me. You know, see, God, I need you to get me what it really is that's going to quench my thirst. Oh, it's nice that God loves me. Oh, that's nice to know. Thank you. But I really, really want my husband to love me. So for Leah, it's this need for companionship, and she'll, she'll do just about anything. So for her, it's companionship that she looks to quench her deepest thirst. For Jacob, it's sex. For Leah, it's companionship. For Rachel, it's children. What she wants and what she needs more than anything is children. And, and listen, that, that, that is a desire that is a good desire. God gives us that desire. That is a good thing. But when that becomes the most important thing to us, when that becomes what we look to to quench our spiritual thirst, that's when we run into trouble. And, and that's what we see here. It, it makes it very clear. Verse 30, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Right? That's, that's the kind of thing that you say about what? You say that about water. When you've been in the desert for days and days and days and days and you finally come across, give me water or I'll die. Right? That's what you say about something that you, you have to. And for Rachel, having children has become that thing which she needs in order to quench her deepest spiritual thirst to the point where she'll, she'll do anything. Hey, sleep with my maidservant. I'll, I'll, do, you know, I'll, I'll do anything to satisfy that spiritual thirst. So here's what we see. We have Jacob, sex, looking for sex. We have 
Leah looking for companionship. We have Rachel looking for children. And here's, again, what we need to realize. All three of these things are good things. Sex is a good thing, right? The Bible is not opposed to sex. The, the Bible sees sex as this gift that is given to us from God. It's a good thing. Companionship with one another. This is, this is a, a good thing right from the beginning. Adam and Eve. Adam is alone. God says it is not good for man to be alone. Companionship is a gift from God. He wants us to desire relationships with others and children. They're a good thing. That desire for children is a good thing. These are all good things, but here's, here's what we need to see here. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a worldly thing and leads to dysfunction. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a worldly thing and leads to dysfunction and disaster. In other words, what we're talking about here is idolatry. When something becomes an idol, when it becomes, it takes the place of God. You need to realize, folks, this entire series, it's about idolatry. This entire series called Thirsty Receive, it's all about idolatry. Um, I'm just using a different name. I'm just sort of tricking you because I talk about idolatry all the time, but I figure if I use a different image, then maybe you won't realize I'm talking about the same thing. But in the end, I'm really just like pinky in the brain, right? Gee, brain, what, what are we going to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, right? Take over the world. Well, for me, gee, Kevin, I have this inner monologue with myself. What are we going to preach on this week? The same thing you preach every week. To turn to Jesus, turn to God, turn to the one who can actually meet and satisfy your deepest spiritual needs. And turn away from the things that won't. You know, I've, I've done a bunch of different series, seven different, or seven ways to miss out. Remember I did a series called that, Seven Ways to Miss Out? That was about idolatry. Did a series last year called Surrender. Right? Surrender your idol, same, same thing. Right? Thirsty, it's the same thing. We need to turn from those things that are good things, but when they become ultimate things, they become worldly things, and they lead to dysfunction. They lead to Jerry Springer, right? So let's talk about this for a minute here. What happens when sex becomes our idol? What happens when sex becomes that thing which we look to to satisfy our deepest needs? Look, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. I have a, a friend of mine told me that he and his wife had been having sex every day for years. Some of you are like, wow. That sounds amazing. They ended up in therapy. They ended up in therapy. It caused all of this dysfunction in their relationship and in their family because it became this thing which they were looking to to satisfy their deepest needs. Sex, like a lot of things, we're going to see this as we go through this series. When things become idols like this, here's what happens. Sex is like this. It's like a drug, right? And so it's exciting at first, but the more you pursue it, the more you go after it, the more it becomes ultimate to you, then you need to have it just to feel normal. So now sex isn't, isn't about something fun and exciting. It's, it's about, you know, I have to have it just to feel normal 
normal. And then what do you have to do? Well, to get excitement, you have to keep upping the ante, right? So now just having it with your spouse isn't enough. Now you have to turn to pornography. Now you have to turn to someone else. And you have to just keep amping it up, amping it up, amping it up. And, and you discover, folks, people who find themselves stuck in the trap with pornography, they're not happy. They're not happier. Maybe you've been that. Maybe you're there now. Maybe you are stuck in an addiction to pornography. The reality is you're not happier than you were before you were in that. You're worse. You have to have this just to feel normal. This is what happens when good things become ultimate things. They become worldly things, and they lead to destruction. That's that's what happens when sex becomes an ultimate thing. Companionship. Listen, companionship, again, it's a good thing. But when companionship becomes that thing which we're looking to to satisfy our deepest needs, it becomes very destructive, and a lot of different things can happen. For one thing, when it becomes your idol, then nobody is good enough. Nobody's good enough. You'll never be, nobody's good enough. Think about this. When, when somebody becomes your idol, they're, they're God to you, so you need them to be like God. That's a pretty heavy weight. I need you to be God to me, right? So, they're, they're never good enough. They're, there's always something that's wrong. So the person who looks to that, they're, they're never happy. A couple, a couple different things can happen. If you're the kind of person that's a committed person, you're committed to the person that is your idol, then you're just miserable, right? And this, this happens in a lot of, I think you find this in religious circles because one of the characteristics of religious people um, is that they're loyal, committed, that kind of thing, right? That's just kind of a tendency of religious people, irrespective of what religion, right? That religious people are committed and loyal, and so if they get into a relationship and, and their idolatry is with their companion, and so they're expecting them to be like God, then they're never going to be good enough, but they're going to be committed, so they're just going to be in this miserable relationship for most of their life. If you're not committed... Well, then you'll just move from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. From one relationship to the next relationship to the next relationship to the next relationship because no relationship is ever enough. When companionship becomes your idol, here's, here's one of the things that happens here. Another thing that can happen is you can't even enjoy that relationship because you're so afraid you'll lose it. Right? I mean, I've shared the story. This, this can be true in friendships, not just marital related. In friendships, I remember sharing the story of a, a, a friend of mine, a group of us. There was a group of us in, in, uh, when we were in graduate school. And I could tell, like, our, our little community was so important to her. And in our final year, like, we still had four months left before we graduated. We were all at lunch together, and she was just depressed. And we're like, what's wrong? She's like, in four months, we're not going to see each other anymore. We're like, well, that's four months from now. Why are you miserable now? Let's have fun, right? You see, when it becomes that important to you, you can't even enjoy it anymore. You're afraid you're going to lose it. You're afraid you're going to mess it up. When good things become ultimate things, they become worldly things, and they become destructive. With sex, with companionship, and the same thing is true with children. When our children become the source of life for us, the most important thing to us, 
Isn't this true? Just like with companionship, one of the things that happens is that you can't enjoy your children because you're so worried about them. You can't even enjoy it because you're just, you're so worried about, about, about what's going to happen. And then often what happens for that individual is what, what do you do? You become incredibly controlling. You control them like you control your breathing. It's a good thing you control your breathing because your life really does depend on it. And when you start treating your children like, I'm going to die, like Rachel, I'm going to die if things don't go right for them, then what, you end up controlling them and you, you can't you can't enjoy it. They don't enjoy it. Or on the other hand, they can go the other direction too, right? Some individuals where their children are what gives them their life, it's almost the opposite, right? So they take a completely hands-off approach. There's no discipline at all because they couldn't possibly imagine their child being upset with them. Right? Like, no, this like this relationship is my life, and if my child's upset with me, I, I can't allow that to happen. And so almost the opposite happens where there's, there's no discipline. What happens when children are your, your idol? For some people, what it means is they'll enter into a, a, a bad relationship, a bad marriage. They'll marry somebody. They'll get involved with somebody, even though it's not looking like a good idea, but they just want children so much. When good things become ultimate things, they become worldly things, and they become destructive. Friends, the only thing that can quench your deepest spiritual needs is God himself. About 2,000 years after this story takes place, another story takes place at a well. In Palestine, this woman, a Samaritan woman, she comes to the well to draw water. And interestingly enough, the well is called Jacob's Well. They actually named the well after Jacob. And this woman comes to the well, and she comes and she meets someone named Jesus. And Jesus gets into a conversation with her, and he knows, he knows everything. So he knows that she's not just thirsty for water. She's thirsty for relationship. He knows that she's doing exactly what I'm talking about here. He discovers that she's been married five times. She's on her sixth relationship. And he points out to her, he highlights, you know, this, this is what you're looking to. He does it in a very subtle way, a very non-confrontational way, less confrontational way, I suppose. I should say, and, and, and here's what he says. He says, everyone who comes to this well, and of course, is he talking about the well that they're getting water from? No, no, no. He's talking about her life and her pursuit of relationships. He's saying, everyone who tries to drink from this well will go thirsty again, but everyone who drinks from the water I give him will never thirst again. Friends, the heart of the Christian faith is that God loves us so much that he came for us. He came to quench our deepest thirst. And, and here's what you need to realize. Here's what, here's what happened. You see, when we start looking to the, the one source that could actually satisfy our deepest thirst, 
you'll actually become a better parent and you'll become better in relationships. Because notice what happens here. You become a better parent because now, now your children aren't about you. It's not about you anymore. It's not about your satisfaction. It's not about, you know, they need to succeed so that you'll look like a good parent or they need to be safe because you couldn't possibly live without them. You see, that's, it's about you in that case. You see, when God is our source, now we, we have what we need and now we can give. We can love our spouse. We can love our children. When God is the one who quenches our thirst, it enables us to live out these relationships in much healthier and much more satisfying ways. Friends, so let me just ask you this. What in your life is functioning as a counterfeit well? What for each, every one of us, when you look at relationships, might there be an aspect of the way in which you pursue relationships? Because the reality is, is that it's, it's almost functioning as an idol in your life. Friends, this is a season to, to turn away from that, to put it back in its proper context. These are good things, but they can't be ultimate things. It's an opportunity for us to turn to the only one who can truly satisfy. The ushers, please come forward for communion. Musicians, you, Rachel, you can come up. Communion, this is an opportunity, friends, to turn to the one who can satisfy. As we take the elements, here's what we discover when we take the elements. The elements point us to the very heart of the gospel. And that is that we have a God who loves us so much. We have a God who will never turn away from us and can never be defeated. The cross shows us that he loves us, that no matter what we do, he will always be there for us. This is something you can never find in any human relationship. We have a God that no matter what we do, he will always love us and always turn from us or turn to us. And what we discover in the person of Jesus is that he died, but he also rose from the grave, which means that he can never be away from us. He's never going to disappear. He's never going to be gone. Friends, there's going to come a time when you, your spouse is going to die. We don't know when that's going to be. We don't know when our human relationships are going to be separated, but the reality of the gospel shows that this relationship with God cannot ever be broken. So I encourage you to come and to take the elements and through faith to turn from those idols and turn to the one who can truly satisfy. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for the gifts that you give us. God, we praise you for sex. We praise you for companionship. We praise you for children. We praise you for human relationships, and the tremendous gifts that they are. God, most importantly, we thank you for the relationship that we can have with you. God, I pray that this morning we would turn to you, that we would drink deeply from the spirit that you so freely give. God, we come to you not because of anything that we have done, but entirely because of your grace.
God, I pray that we would come freely then, Lord, that whatever we've done, whatever we've turned to, you are a God who forgives. We might come boldly before the throne of grace and receive your very spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name.